Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Stepping Out. How are you all? I feel like I haven't spoken to you for ages and it feels really nice to be here. Like a lot of podcasters, I've dropped some stitches in the tapestry of the regular release programme to accommodate the fact that I have a new job and that my twins are at home for the summer holidays and that I'm doing an insane amount of walking training and events. So I'm now in training for my upcoming event on the 4th of September, which is a Looney 100 continuous walk from Eastbourne to Arundel on the south coast of the UK. That's hosted by the Ultra Challenge guys via Action Challenge, and I've all my fingers and toes crossed that I can pull it off through the night, head torch on. I'm doing it in support of Prostate Cancer UK, along with a load of other events, and the link to sponsor me for that is in the episode description, so thank you very much. I am planning to be interviewing more guests in the autumn, as well as putting together some more meditations, which may be on a different platform, but more about that in the future. So stick with me, I'm still here. On to this episode's guest, and today I interviewed the funny and lovely Rachel Wheelie. Like in The Matrix, where they download the martial art, you know, I love the idea of being able to download, like, I don't know, knife skills, or not not for, like, ninja purposes, but for cooking. Rachel is Head of Communications and Institutional Events at St George's University. She's a speaker, a host, a writer, a gigging comedian, and a podcaster. And all of that whilst being a mum of three, and in her own words, is delighted to just be out of the house. So we talk all about what she does when she is out of the house in her various roles, and why she loves walking, and generally about having her fingers in lots of different pies. Oh, and if you're a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fan, this one is definitely for you. So get on some kind of footwear, grab your phone and headphones, and I'll take you through her story. Enjoy yourself, and I'll see you at the end. Hi, Rachel Wheelie. How's your day been today? Hello. Uh, it's, it's been really good, actually. Uh, I've had a wonderful day because I've been self-isolating for the last seven days. And today was the day I was allowed out. Oh, really? Oh, no. That's just terrible, isn't it, when that happens? Did you get pings or did you know someone or I, what happened? I just got I just got pinged and no symptoms developed. So I was just sort of pacing around. I actually went for my daily walk and recorded my podcast while I was walking around my kitchen table. Oh, <laughs> and, and what have you done for seven days then apart from that so I've been working and I've been chatting to people on the phone and I've been pacing around waiting to be released <laughs> are you with your kids as well or are you on your own no I'm on my own I was supposed to see my kids this weekend but they couldn't come around because of this self-isolation thing so they've been with their dad and uh, I've been facetiming with them and it's not the same FaceTiming with a kid, you know, you need to hug them, really. Yeah, no, exactly. I know. Has it been quite nice, though, in a way to kind of lock yourself away a bit and be on your own? It has been quite nice in a way, yeah. Um, I'm I'm quite happy on my own, uh, usually, for limited periods of time. So I actually just did a lot of pottering about and I'm about to move house at the end of the month. So I thought I could probably put a few things in boxes I don't need. Yeah. And has that happened? yeah that's happened so now now I'm like oh actually being in my flat with loads of stuff packed away is much nicer than being surrounded by loads of clutter yeah oh do you know what I've been looking at my house recently and thinking there's so much stuff here that I think just has accumulated over the time and the other day I just kind of got some ornaments and just chucked them in the bin <laughs> I just had enough of them being there it's nice to do that sometimes isn't it and just think Life oh, laundry. I need all this stuff yeah exactly 
Right, and I need to ask you this question. I'm sure loads of people ask you it. So um, I need to ask if this is your real surname, Wheelie. Wheelie is Wheelie, my surname. And uh, my maiden name was Puddyfoot, which is even more ludicrous and is in The Hobbit. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. It's a good comedian name, though, isn't it, Wheelie, I think? It's a really good comedian name, yeah. Um, I've done a gig called Say My Name before now, which was actually about names, and I got to do loads of gags about it, so it was great fun. Fantastic. And I bet you get the whole, she was really good and all that kind of stuff, but you get that quite a bit, don't you? Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to build my whole, um, my whole career, comedic career around uh, Rachel Wheelie is funny. Perfect. Okay, so let's crash into your career then, because you do a lot of things uh, and have done today. And I hope to talk about most, if not all of them, obviously professional things, of course. But before those, um, one thing I'd like to ask you about is where you were brought up because that was Eton College wasn't it so why was that and how did you find um, bringing back your mates for play dates to there? (laughs) (laughs) So I was there because my dad got a job as a teacher there a maths teacher when I was about two years old and so we moved to this town which has been overtaken by the school and the, the town is really beautiful and it's and it's small and village-like and cute. And then as soon as the term starts, it gets overrun by all these aristocratic adolescents. Um, and and it was it was a lovely place to grow up, but it was quite strange as a teenager to be surrounded by like a thousand teenage millionaires. Yeah, that must have been really odd. So did you have a house in the grounds or was it actually in the college itself that you lived? Uh, yeah, they they basically they've taken over all the buildings in the town they sort of own them all and if you go there and get a job as a teacher they give you um, a flat to live in if you're a single person or they give you a house if you have a family and all the teachers live around the um, sort of school campus and it's a sort of small quite insular academic community it's a bit like living in a cross between Hogwarts and an Oxbridge College. You also have some really sort of strange memories from there as well. I mean, did you, I mean, I suppose because you lived there since you were so young, you didn't really think of it to be any different. But, you know, obviously you could compare it to your mates, like I said, you know, what? how was that? What were the memories that you have of actually living there? Yeah, it was, it was quite a strange place to live. I got involved with the theatre there. So I did a few plays where the boys were kind of 98% of the cast and then there'd be the odd girl from some teacher's family that would sort of get involved and that was highly entertaining yeah. we had members of the royal family knocking around which meant we also had people with guns knocking around right. just shortly behind those people to keep them safe and thousands of tourists sort of swarming around the place a lot of the time sure, taking yeah. photographs of everything and um and and the boys used to get up to some really hilarious pranks so one of the younger boys would stand around waiting to get a photo taken by the tourists. And then one of the older boys would sort of pop out from somewhere that had previously been hidden and fine him for posing. And the, the younger kid would cry and then inevitably the tourists would cough up the fine money and then and then they would split it on their way in for tea. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And you mentioned there about um, performing. So I said you've done a lot of things, but I'm going to start with how you entered the world of media and performance, because that was in radio, but that was an absolute radio, wasn't it? So 
what did you do there and was it your sort of dream first job because you studied psychology right yeah I studied psychology at York University and I felt that I needed to do something with that degree so the first job I got uh, out of uni was at a uh, media advertising agency and I just didn't like the culture very much uh, so I ditched out of that after about 18 months and went to do an internship at Absolute Radio and it was a dream job it was absolutely a dream job when I was at university I used to listen to all kinds of things about how to break into radio and I always dreamt of doing it and wasn't sure I ever would so it was it was a dream come true to go and work there and I was very very happy there eventually got to the point where I just couldn't really handle the media lifestyle and wanted something a bit more Bit, bit calmer should we put it that mm-hmm. way so eventually um went to the BBC instead which was a little bit more grown up yeah absolutely and that was quite an amazing kind of leap really because you became then the studio director on the Today program which you've described as made me laugh as for people who like to wake up both sad and angry um <laughs> that's, that's what I described the Today program as yeah exactly and how um but how did you get into that because obviously you're, you're in absolute radio it's your first job and then suddenly you're into the BBC Four's Today program what happened well the first thing to say is that I was one of many people who studio directed the Today program so it wasn't my sole job and um the reason I ended up doing it was that somebody at absolute went and trained as a studio manager at the BBC and so I was still in touch with him and sent him an email next time they were recruiting for studio managers saying hey I'd really like to come and do what you do can you help me and he basically said look you need to know these things about how microphones work and how radio works and how mixing desks work and so on so I I sort of learned as much as I possibly could and advanced the interview and to be honest if I hadn't had that contact I wouldn't have known any of the things that I needed to know so um it's often the way isn't it with jobs that you need some kind of inside information just to understand what's necessary Mm, yeah and often it is you know who you know isn't it so as well as I mean obviously you had experience with absolute radio but to um, get your foot in the door that must have been amazing so what was okay what was the sort of best and worst bit about directing that program um, it was it was a brilliant program to work on. I, I, it was really really fun um, because you basically were sort of like you just kind of strapped into it as if you were piloting a some kind of like fighter jet, and, and <laughs> you just had to like deal with anything that happened over the course of the three hours of the program. And and often there was no time, so you were always trying to keep the thing on the road. You know, it was like that bit in Wallace and Gromit where. Uh, Gromit's kind of like frantically laying down track on this train that's like careering out of control so so we were often we were often trying to sort out a problem that was going to be occurring you know 10 minutes later whilst also trying to still produce the piece of content that was on the radio at the time and it required a lot of uh, sort of fast thinking and also and also remaining calm under pressure those sorts of skills um, I think the hardest thing about it was the was the wake up call, which came at 3.30 a.m. Oh. And that was just I, I've, ta- I've talked to quite a few shift workers over the years, because when I was at Absolute Radio, I used to work on the breakfast show and the presenters there were in agreement that at 3.30 a.m. alarm clock never gets any easier. It's not the right time to wake up, is it? That's just when you're in that really it heavy sleep. It just isn't. I think I think if you're someone who presents a show like that, you might shift your entire life and actually go to bed significantly earlier and so on. But I think most people doing that kind of shift work because they have families 
or you know just just want to spend time with people who don't do shift work yeah um, exactly you know, yeah. just partners or friends or whatever tend to just go to bed like a little bit early and it isn't enough isn't enough sleep and also I guess I mean you have to sort of switch modes don't you you're in that showtime and when I was in the studio just about to take a class I could wake up in the morning and think oh god just I feel really tired or whatever and you just have to switch it on it's that right let's go 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 and so I guess some days you you'd think I really don't know how I'm going to do this today maybe if you'd been out the night before or something <laughs> it's not easy is it it's it's horrendous and then halfway through that I started doing stand-up comedy and so I was really burning the candle at both ends oh, and crikey. it just that just isn't really sustainable at all. No. And, and were the people easy to direct? I mean, obviously, they're, you know, intelligent, knowledgeable people on there. And I mean, did they take your direction or was it all a bit, um, we know what we're doing now, we've been doing this for years. How, how did that go? It depends. Um, some of them were really attentive to the studio production and others were, as you say, like they're, they're very kind of smart people. They were really into the conversation slash argument they were having with with the education secretary or, or whoever it was yeah. and they wanted to you know get their point like make their point and and try to try to unseat this person a little bit in order to try and you know kind of move the conversation on a yeah. little bit and and so they probably weren't paying an enormous amount of attention to me saying come on you've got to wrap this up now exciting listening to it but at the same time you know wanting them to listen to you must have been quite a task really yeah I, th- I think you just have to just understand the amount of control that you have which is not very much <laughs> <laughs> lower your standards of control yeah <laughs> use your psychology in that a little bit as well I, I guess oh I'm obsessed with I mean I did a psychology degree but actually the psych geek in me has continued all the way through like you know 20 years later I'm still completely obsessed with all kinds of psychology type stuff um you know just to sort of navigate the world really because half of Mm. navigating the world is understanding other people and other people are very difficult to understand yeah and yourself as well I mean I'm completely addicted to it as well with my studies and stuff and you just can't once you open a book and start reading about it, you think, wow, it opens up a whole different world, doesn't it? And like you said, there's so many different things you can learn about and different things that people have discovered. And, you know, before you know it, you're kind of, you're thinking, oh, that, you're comparing this one to that one. And then and when you go out into the world, you think, yeah, oh, OK, I've got your number now. I've, I've just read a book on you. You know, it's quite good. Isn't yeah. It? And, and especially when you're intimately connected with somebody, like when dating comes into it, there's a whole yeah. world of extra stuff and it's so much more important to kind of try to understand and then you end up psychoanalyzing everybody you date which I think is probably like best not to do if you can yeah it. do you get your friends saying don't don't psychoanalyze me because they know you're going to do it um not anymore maybe like <laughs> they, they probably wouldn't put it that directly but yes absolutely they just walk away they get bored of my my proselytizing on attachment theory and you know they're just like okay can we just have a drink and and forget I just want a pint that's all I want yeah so were you you involved with the world at one as well were you yes I used to studio direct that program as well sometimes oh right that must have been really really interesting because that's that's so so current as well isn't it that must have been brilliant to work on yeah, that was really fun. And and the thing about that programme was that um, often you would think you knew what, what was happening in the programme and then something would happen because, of course, it's like it being broadcast in the middle of the day when all kinds of breaking news is going on. And so uh, you could find the entire thing just sort of changing really quickly. 
and the, the journalist who worked on that program had to turn around um, a whole show from nothing in, in a matter of hours. So it, it was amazing to work with people who could get interviews kind of nailed down that quickly and so on. Yeah, and I suppose the effort that goes into that really shows with how interesting it is and how popular it is as well. So that just must have been brilliant to work on. And also, I mean, you've obviously done quite a few things in the BBC, but you also worked on the 2015 election. That must have been a bit hectic as well, was it? That was really hectic. And I was doing that as an attachment to the comedy department. So I was actually producing something called The Vote Now Show, which is a spin-off of The Now Show with Steve Punt and Hugh Dennis, which I think is still on Radio 4. Um, and that was fun. That was brilliant, working with comedians and comedy writers. And then on the night of the election, we we were up all night kind of putting the show together for the next day right. as the results came in. And, and the results of the 2015 election, I don't know whether you remember this, but they, they were very strange. Like we did not expect the result that actually happened at that time. Yeah. And so it was a bit of a, it was a bit of an emotional night. Everybody was a bit thrown by it. Because uh, yeah. you can imagine, you know, you're working with comedians, comedy writers and so on, they're mm-hmm. reasonably left-leaning type people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we watched the news at 10, which basically said, oh, it's a massive Tory landslide. And we thought, oh, wow. Okay. And the other people yeah. kind of prepared some material <laughs> and then had to kind of well, that, work it that all was out. the preparation session. That was where we were supposed to be putting it all together. So that was at the point at which everyone had to sort of throw out what they thought they were going to say uh, and, and write, write completely yeah. different stuff. Yeah, sort of really, really off the cuff stuff. Oh, brilliant. That sounds like a really amazing career there. And and actually, um, in relation to that, I saw, oh, I just saw, well, you're a speaker as well, aren't you? So, and I saw a really good presentation that you did on YouTube on the BBC Pips, which was actually really interesting <laughs> for me, but also, I think for everyone, but it also had people in stitches in the audience that I think because... Oh, yeah. Do you remember through the sheer kind of boffin, like ridiculousness of it all? And I could tell you were really <laughs> having fun with that. Um, but more importantly, your sort of delivery of those quite trivial facts but really interesting facts as well and it strikes me that you're someone who could describe a dog in a park in a certain way which you actually did on your podcast the one with the hole was it was it a hole in it, it looked like it had a hole um, in it yeah <laughs> I've forgotten about that yeah it was just a dog was wearing a coat that was exactly the same color as as the field behind it so it looked a lot like kind of half a dog running along with just the head and legs I love it I was just thinking like you know listening to that and listening to what you talk about on your podcast which we'll go on to in a while you've got a real sort of laid-back observational skill where do you think I mean it's obviously kind of very comedic as well naturally where do you think that comes from oh that's a really interesting question um I think I think comedians are kind of slightly split into like observational comedy is slightly split into a, a the world is insane and I'm sane and I'm insane and the world is sane mm-hmm. and I think my natural way of interacting with the world is always this is all completely bonkers like I yeah. find the kind of social constructs really bizarre in some yeah. some ways and so I guess the way I've always written is to say like this this crazy stuff is happening and some self-deprecating stuff as well. Like, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll always try. I'll always try to make the target of the jokes myself if I possibly can. But, but often it's it's saying like, okay, so we do this. Really? Like, is that is does that make any sense? Probably yeah, not. It's questioning it, I suppose. But and I suppose that self-deprecation. I'm saying yes a lot because I completely relate to all of this, and I think that almost for a comedian is is very funny when you can 
pull it off. I mean, with this, for example, um, people listening to this have to go and see that it's only 10 minutes and it's just all about the BBC pips. But you must have done a little bit of research on it. And for example, um, you went through, you know, when it started 1924 and then how it's generated a thousandth of a second early to combat the lag time. I mean, all of this is like real geeky stuff. But because of the way you were delivering it, it's very, very funny. And then you talked about the International Earth Rotation Society. which exists. Well, right. So that's really funny because you, you talked about how the Earth's rotation is slowing down and that's why the last pip is half a second longer, oh, oh, longer, which I was completely sucked in by. And then you said that and I thought, no, does that exist? Does that really exist, that society? And I looked it up and I think it might have changed names now because it's called the International Earth Rotation and Reference System Service. There you go. Oh, and I'll put, that, in. put that in. I think, I mean, don't just check. <laughs> just check I've got that right. But um it, because you have to add a leap second in every now and again, right? You do, yeah. Um, it's all got to do with uh, a point in the 70s at which they decided that it that it wasn't ideal to have all these different time zones all over the world. And so um, they would they wanted to kind of make time a bit more universal and they wanted to use atomic time. And but the, but the problem is that that assumes that the Earth's rotation is consistent and it isn't. Mm-hmm. So over time, the Earth's rotation sort of changes a little bit. And yeah. that means that you end up with time left over and they occasionally have to insert a second into the calendar, which right. seems ridiculous because we think of calendars as being days and weeks and months, not seconds, but yeah. they have to insert a second into the calendar. And the way this is like manifested in the world is via the BBC pips, which I find completely insane. So there are always six pips, but every so often there are seven pips, yeah. but only on two separate days of the year. They only ever do it on June the 30th or December the 31st is it yeah it might be it might be that, the that doesn't even make sense after. in itself does it that the, the fact that no, they... not really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they've only done it so to get so to give some context about what what scale we're talking about here they've only done it 27 times since right. since they decided to start doing this in the 70s oh he sits there and works that out I wish I had some leftover time <laughs> Yeah, I mean, twenty-seven extra seconds in in four decades is not much, is it? What are you going to do with that? It's inconsequential, <laughs> isn't it? And uh, that was brilliant. So I'll put the link as well on here, but it's really good. So obviously that brings in your whole kind of comedian side of things as well, because you know when you do, I suppose when you do speak and do all these things, you naturally do that, like you said, and you do tour as a comedian across the UK, don't you? And uh, just a few facts to make you feel good. You've reached the semi-final of Amused Moose Laugh-Off, so you think you're funny in 2015, runner-up in Funny Women final in the same year, and you were shortlisted for BBC New Comedy Awards in 2018. So when did you realise you could hold an audience and therefore be on stage? Because it's completely different, isn't it, from making your mates laugh down the pub? I, yeah, my, my, again, one of my friends started doing stand-up comedy and, and I followed them into it. I think I'm always... I always feel like I can do something as soon as somebody else that I know is doing it for some reason. Yeah. Um, you know, despite the fact that there are people out there doing absolutely anything you want. Um, but I went <laughs> to support him at a gig and he he sort of persuaded me to have a go at it and booked me in for a slot uh, a couple of months later. So I had I had a couple of months to write something. Uh, then just that gig, I got up and did five minutes and I can't really remember what I was talking about now, but but it was really fun. and. And I really liked the challenge of kind of honing material over time and mm. 
trying stuff out and making it better and, and also the the game of working out how to make the joke land better because like often you think of something that makes you laugh you tell your friends in the pub and they laugh but they're mostly laughing because they're enjoying your company rather than yeah. because it's actually funny in a way that works to strangers and then when you tell strangers you find that actually there's a few things that they don't understand about the way that you're telling it and you have to work out how to how to t- how to give them exactly the right amount of information so that the joke will land and that they don't get to the punchline before you say it as well which is also quite important yeah 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 because often when you go and see a comedian you have to kind of warm up to them and get to know them and people are already ready to laugh aren't they I guess but there's always that I suppose I mean correct me if I'm wrong there's that sort of initial phase where however short it is or long it is where people are trying to suss you out and work out what your style is so you know what what is your style how do you kind of open your show to make everybody well hopefully instantly laugh is what you're after I guess yeah I, I think when a comedian walks onto a stage the audience are looking at them and making a load of sort of assumptions and judgments about them immediately yeah. because that's how we work right as humans um and so it's usually I try to you know reference what they must be thinking Mm-hmm. which is why a lot of comedians start their sets with I know what you're thinking and yeah. then they you know Demi Moore's let herself go or whatever it helps if you're a massive seven foot enormous man if you say something like that I yeah. I usually do a joke about how I am in fact like an adult not a toddler because I'm five foot two and uh often wear dungarees on stage so I have to reassure people that I am actually allowed to be there <laughs> so I think you said with the pips one um I am a short adult not an overconfident child which yeah I guess yeah. immediately puts people at ease doesn't it and it's finding that level that people are going to go oh actually yeah okay we're in we're in that's it isn't it yes yeah and I think audiences want to feel like they're they're going to be okay and they're being looked after if that makes sense like if you go and see a comedian and they seem to be really really unsure of what they're doing it can make the audience a bit tense uh-huh. so part of it is is trying to reassure them that you know what you're doing uh they're gonna be fine they're gonna have a great 10 minutes with you as you sort of tell them some hilarious nonsense about the pips or whatever you're doing yeah exactly so you said about your friend got you onto the circuit but did you find it a challenge to sort of get booked from there how did, did it snowball how does that work no no it didn't snowball at all um there are a few comedians who it snowballs for and often what they do is they they go and do um competitions and if you do well in competitions, then often people will book you. Um, mm. But actually, often, even if you do well in competitions, you're booking your own gigs for ages. And it used right. to be the case that you would have to get a copy of Time Out magazine, find the comedy section and, and phone all these venues to get slots. Um, these days, it all works via, I mean, who knows how it works like now in the after COVID times. But um, when I was gigging a lot, I would do most of my booking online and you just sort of email somebody or you'd fill in a form or you'd message one of your friends who ran a gig and you'd sort of book yourself in that way. Oh, okay. So they would just kind of go, yeah, all right, then we'll give you a go. And then you'd rock up and do that. Or do they have to look at some kind of reference point? And there are lots of open mic gigs. So the open mic gigs are lovely because you can just sort of sign yourself in, rock up, have five minutes and do whatever you want. And 
some of the comedians who do five minutes at these open mic gigs are doing horrendously racist, sexist, homophobic mm. material. And others are doing stuff which is just, you know, the funniest thing you've ever seen, um, which never really sees the light of day. It's a real mixed bag. And I found it quite reassuring that I had a choice of what I went up and said on stage. And so I could I could be really confident that even if I was bad at comedy, I wouldn't be doing really um, inappropriate jokes. Uh, I try and do reasonably, reasonably family friendly stuff. And I try not to do anything that's going to be massively offensive. So you do at least have that choice. Um, and yeah. then going from being a bad comedian to being a good comedian is kind of the that's the real work. And that's that's what keeps it interesting. Yeah. And I guess seeing those people, I mean, that that's quite off putting seeing that. But I guess that spurs you on, you know, people that are talking you know, racist or homophobic stuff or whatever. Um, that spurs you on to to be better to to avoid that. I'm not that you do that anyway, but you know to to avoid that kind of um, situation, perhaps, or go right. Okay, I'm gonna you know looking at people and going, I'm gonna I'm not gonna do that. I recognise that in myself in terms of style, not content, as I was talking about, um, and maybe learning from that as well. But what is your style then? I mean, is it is it this kind of observational style thing, or are you are you telling jokes mainly, or how how does it work for you? Uh, yeah, I think it's. I, I think it is like observational jokes and trying to build those jokes into routines and then trying trying to build like um trying to build a show via routines uh ultimately and I've taken a few shows to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival where I've been doing like split bills so far um where I would do like half an hour's worth of jokes and when you're doing half an hour's worth you kind of need it to have some kind of story or mm. something you're trying to something some message you're trying to get across just to make the whole thing hang together a little bit better um but I'm, I'm at the beginning of that really mm-hmm. yeah I don't I don't feel like I've conquered that kind of longer form thing at all um and, and actually I was going to be going to Edinburgh with my first kind of solo show in 2020 but of course that that got very cancelled so um so I'm still hoping to do that at some point yeah yeah and it's difficult isn't it to sort of have that confidence and also to remember everything I mean for me personally that would be an issue <laughs> to remember the routine I'd kind of be yeah jumping from here there and everywhere well, I think because you have to get it good don't you actually walking can help with that weirdly so um one of the methods of like remembering a set is to is is to like mentally walk through walk along a familiar route and put reminders mm-hmm. like this is all you, you're doing all of this kind of in your head but yeah put put things that will remind you of the next bit along mm-hmm. that route so that you then sort of walk it again when you're on stage which is a bit disconnecting from an audience to be honest but um but it's but it is the only way I've actually found of remembering a set in order yeah because that's how the, those people that have got amazing memories that's how they do it isn't it they've got like a, a house or a building and they go into different rooms and they remember these people that can remember yeah. about a million things and it is the way I tend to do that if I'm needing to remember something I have to have some kind of reference to it and it needs to be built into a story you know like when you're doing that game when I went on holiday I took a suitcase when I went on holiday yeah that's really good to do it like that isn't it because you can kind of memorize some kind of story so I guess yeah that's the only... and if you put it into a story anyway that's a bit easier to remember you know you're not just picking up individual facts are you you're, you're putting them into a some kind of process some kind of story so that must be really interesting to work out yeah I think that definitely helps because um I mean this is this is something that 
that I remember doing in my psychology studies was, you know, if you can chunk the information together, then then it makes it easier because you don't have to have quite too many reminders along the way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you found it a barrier being a woman comedian, because I know it's a lot better now, but it, it never was, was it? And I'm just wondering how much that's improved. Um, I, I think I found it difficult as a mum more than I found it difficult as a female comedian, because mm-hmm. I guess like my what, what I actually want to do with my life is probably not very well aligned to the lifestyle of being a comedian. So I'm probably not going to end up being a comedian as my full time job. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if I was younger and sort of completely unattached with no dependence at all, I could travel around. It's not not necessarily something that I'm. I wish I could do, but it just you know, it, like the more kind of your life has in it, the the harder it is to to have this lifestyle where you might like go to Manchester for the weekend and do a couple of gigs on a Friday night and do a couple more gigs on a Saturday night. Yeah, like that's fine if you don't have very much else sort of to fill your days but if you have kids to look after and stuff it's it's Mm. not very practical so I I think I wouldn't call that a barrier I think it's just life you've got you've got to kind of decide what's important to you right because if if people have kids and they really really want to do comedy they will do that anyway I obviously want to see my kids more than I want to do comedy so that's actually you know is that a barrier or is that just that I don't actually want it as much as uh, it's choices isn't it yeah that's right and, you know because you get pulled in all sorts of directions don't you and um and especially as you work as well so so what um what's been your best heckle then have you had have you had any I don't think I've had any actually um well done which, which well I'm not sure that's like necessarily I think people probably just think I would break down and cry and run away <laughs> um, <laughs> and would you uh <laughs> I don't know it was always something I was kind of nervous about and but I I think I probably played the clubs that were the least likely to have heckling problems if that makes sense because Mm. I tended to go to clubs where the the people sort of emceeing were reasonably in control of the room right and and laid the law down about what what it was I mean it's it's a really fascinating thing to me like the 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 crowd dynamics of, you know, that there's a room above a pub, which is just a room with some chairs and tables in it that people go to eat in sometimes. And then it gets transformed into a comedy venue. And what what the sort of things that are put in place around the room do to create that atmosphere and to create like a set of rules around how to behave yeah. for people and the extent to which the, the person who's like hosting the gig can control that and influence that. So I think I think I've just been lucky in that I haven't I haven't done many of the gigs where heckling is likely to happen because I've been mm. doing gigs that are sort of well organized and reasonably calm. I yeah, think you can yeah. choose to put yourself in the rooms which are crazy and and that that would probably that would probably mean a lot more heckling. So I just I've kind of kept myself in a reasonably safe mainstream kind of section of the comedy circuit, I think. Yeah, and also I think it's kind of a bit better these days because people I'm not sure if people do it so much it's almost like they, they don't want to get put down you know I think I've seen that happen and and it makes more of a fool of them doesn't it so I guess um maybe people just think oh it's not worth it I might get something said back to me that I don't know what to say to you know so yeah and I think some of the comedians are really good at this sort of heckle put down stuff and I and and actually have to invite it from the audience because it just isn't really the dumb thing to do so 
I remember yeah. seeing Jimmy Carr doing some massive sort of room where he had to, he had to invite heckles because they weren't going to happen um, spontaneously. Yeah, because of the the kind of the order of things and the way it had all been set up. So we had to he had to invite them and then and then he did have some great heckle put downs, but it was a little bit like okay, so you've you've sort of like created this whole situation. Yeah, manufactured. Not yeah, very, yeah. Very natural. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. So, okay, let's move on to podding, your friend and mine, Um, because that's where I first stumbled across you when I found your relatively new podcast called Walk the Pod, and it started at exactly the same time as mine, weirdly. But you recorded, yeah, November last year, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly when I just did it on my phone one day. I went, oh, wonder how you do it, and then just started it. But you've recorded 200 episodes, which is insanely good going. I think I'm on like 29 but you do one each time you go for a walk. It's sort of a different format, isn't it? So, and I'm really drawn into its meandering style as you walk. So tell us about what it is and what gave you the idea to do that. Well, um, I suppose it all started uh, in late October last year where I was working from my living room and uh, sort of wanting to get out for daily walks and often not managing to do it. Mm-hmm. And really kind of berating myself for this. Like, it's not difficult just to put your trainers on and get out the door, Rage, come on. Um, But somehow all of that didn't translate to me actually going. And then one morning I just had this idea that what I needed was some kind of commitment to walk. And, uh, you know, was there anyone I could walk with? You know, it would be great if I had a dog because then, then I would have to walk the dog, right? Yeah. Something about the whole thing. I wasn't able to do it just for myself. I needed some kind of accountability body or whatever. And and then I just had this idea of like using the podcast like a dog. So when I go out, I record the podcast and I'm not allowed to record the podcast unless I'm out. And I'm supposed to record the podcast every day. And I've made a commitment to my listeners that I will record the podcast every day. And um, and what's been amazing is not so much that I've done so many podcast episodes because they're just like ten minutes long. They're not very long, mm-hmm. and, and they're all they're all recorded on my phone, so it's very very low production values. <laughs> um, but the fact that I have actually consistently walked since I started the podcast, and that has been incredibly good for my physical health and my mental health, even more so, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also it was kind of. Oh, I can never remember when the lockdowns were and whatever, but it was that time, wasn't it? So you could go off and wander and and actually talk to someone, even if it's your phone, go off and just talk to your phone and, and tell people what you're doing. Because that's literally what it is, isn't it? You go out and you're walking, instead of walking the dog, you walk in the pod and off you go. And it's just observational stuff. Yeah, it's just, and, and also an element of mindfulness has come into it over the, over the period of time that I've been making it as well, where... I'm talking about what's directly in front of me and that kind of allows me to be in the present moment a little bit more there's a little bit of mindfulness in it and also mm-hmm. it kind of provides me with endless amounts of material because if you're talking on a topic you're, you're going to run out of stuff to say here and there and the whole point of it was I wanted to build this podcast for my lunch break and also the lunch break of people who are listening mm-hmm. so I don't want to be doing I don't want to have to be doing preparation in terms of what I'm going to talk about Mm. I want to just be able to walk out the door, turn the microphone on, record while I do this 10 minute walk, which is the same walk more or less every day um, and and have material without having to think about it too hard. So paying attention to what's directly in front, front of me allows me to do that. And it also allows me to reflect on the weather and the, the seasons and how the sort of foliage around me is changing and 
mm. and so on which is something I've always found interesting mm. yeah and I love doing that as well I've um often done introductions or intros or outros to these in in the woods or something like that and you can't help but bring it in to the podcast because that's what you're looking at at the time and I think to listen to it is really really nice I don't know if you listen to the Adam Buxton podcast do you oh I do well that's very much where the where the ramble chat for oh yeah because you say that as well on yours yeah 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 but he does that he brings it all in he says it's this day and and this is what's happening in the clouds and he's really good at at at, um describing it and I really enjoyed listening to that so but it's also equally as nice to say it isn't it it's equally as nice to say right what's around me I can hear the skylarks or I can there's some fluffy clouds or I'm in the woods or whatever and you know if you see people what they're doing and and often you know people will walk past and you can hear them and I I just think it's real life stuff uh and it's a bit like listening to the arches or something <laughs> like as you're walking along yeah you can just pick out bits can't you it is and and it connects you to uh well I, I suppose not the podcast so much but but talking about the weather is is quite nice because the weather sort of allows a connection between people outside I feel like I might not talk to anyone because I'm in London and it's not really the dumb thing to talk to anyone ever or even make eye contact with them. But you're sharing your experience of the weather that we're in. So when I walked out today, everyone was in shorts and baseball caps and, you know, looking happy Mm. with the sunglasses Mm. on. And we've got that connection, even though it's not an actual connection. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like reading a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that's the thing because where I live is completely the opposite. I live in a very small village, and uh, wherever I go, anywhere, everyone's morning, more everywhere you go, people you don't know out in the woods or whatever. So it's completely opposite. And when I do go into London, which is well, especially now, never. But um, I, I also have to, a bit like Crocodile Dundee. I have to kind of get that out of my head that I can smile <laughs> at people and say hello. Yeah. I've occasionally said good morning to people whilst out on a walk in a sort of far flung bit of London and you get nothing back and you think, oh, yeah, no, I'm still within the M25. Yeah. And when does it stop? Because I even notice when I go to my local town, which is bigger, obviously, even there, some people smile, look, other people don't. You know, you're already getting out of it. The bigger places, Mm. I suppose, they think everyone's going to think I'm a complete nutter if I say hello to everybody. (laughs) So (laughs) don't actually do it. But also, I mean, have you noticed anything, I know you said about your physical health has been improved as well as your mental health, but have you noticed anything physically since you've been walking? Is it just 10 minutes you go out for, or is it just the podcast you record for 10 minutes? It's usually 10 minutes walking out away from my flat, and then I sort of wander back the same route while I'm publishing it, while I'm walking along. Um, But at the weekends, I'll, I'll... Well, actually, I'm not recording the podcast at the weekends anymore as of this series, but what I used to do was at the weekends I would record it and then I would just go on a much longer walk round mm. and about yeah because um, 10 minutes is is not very much but I think I think I remember some research saying that a 10 minute walk is actually like in terms of the benefits of it, it it's not far off uh, the same benefits from a 10 minute walk as a, as a much longer one yeah well that's what I was going to say so have you noticed even with that 10 minute walk that your <clears throat> physical health has changed at all as in you know Um, I don't know if you notice anything about your muscles or how you feel breathing or whatever I think it has helped a bit it's quite difficult to say because I suppose I was doing a reasonable amount of walking before even though I wasn't getting out for a break in the middle of the day which is what I wanted to do I was kind of walking quite a lot so I'm not sure my walking has actually increased particularly from doing the podcast Mm. um 
but I mean, I, I think the mental health benefits of it are, are extraordinary. Mm. And especially when you're doing a, a job, which is a nine to five job, you know, you can kind of just get really, I don't know, the, the, the stress of it sort of builds up in your body physically mm-hmm. over the course of the day. Yeah. And I think if you can get out for a short walk at lunchtime, it just evaporates all of that. Even the five minutes, I mean, I've been, I have been sat at my desk all day today and I haven't been out for a walk and I'm really feeling it because I normally go out every day, but I just, and especially as I've been walking a lot lately at long distances, I've, I'm sitting here now and I'm thinking, right, I'm going to, despite the, the light's going to go at some point, I have to go out and that's it within mm-hmm. five minutes, you've totally transformed how you feel and you're moving your limbs and everything. It's lovely, isn't it? Even in that amount of time. Yeah, it makes it makes a massive difference. I wanted to ask you about your long walks, actually. Yeah. Because you do ultra marathons, right? I do, yeah. Yeah, which now am I right in thinking that those are kind of walks rather than runs? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You can run them. So the ones that I do are generally either. So you can run or walk them or jog them or whatever you want to do. What I tend to find though, and it was interesting because the one I've just done, the race to the stones. Um, yes, you get your runners that are fast and off they go and then they disappear and you never see them again. But what you often get is people that are running, but they will be running and walking. So they won't be running up the hills because they just can't or they don't want to because it's, you know, it's 100 kilometers. It's a long way or or even 50. It's still a long way. Um, and I actually walked with a guy uh, on day two of this 100 one. And he'd done day one running with a friend and then got an injury and decided he was going to walk the next day because he kind of decided he was going to do the weekend. And his time on day one running was longer than my time walking. So it just tells you that unless you are properly, you know, you're going to go for it and you're going to run it and you're going to do it in a really good time. It's it's a very similar thing. So if you're running and walking and running and walking, mm-hmm. And he's since said, you know what, I've really, really seen the benefit injury wise for walking versus running. But yeah, you can do either. I mean, I, I walk more. I don't run because having had studio and people walking in with knee injuries and stuff, I've, I've never got into running. It's not my thing. So mm. walking. Yeah, 100 percent. Are you thinking of doing one then? Well, I do some gigs for Save the Rhino International and mm-hmm. they are very much a running and ultramarathon kind of charity. Yeah, their charity work has always been bound up in in long sort of well in the London Marathon and more recently in ultra marathons, and they would I listened to some interview with their CEO talking about ultra marathons and it just dawned on me over the course of this interview that these were not actually things that people were running consistently in, and I thought wow if if ultra marathons are mostly walking events I should totally look into that yeah um so I'm, I'm interested but I'm, I'm at a really early stage of my curiosity about it in that I think in my head I was like I'm going to ask Kaz about this and then I'm going to do some research so if you have any recommendations about how to start I'd be fascinated to hear them yeah and, it, and it's funny you say that because I think a lot of people see it as quite daunting and I'll say people say things to me like oh you're an absolute nutter but since lockdown a number of friends have really got involved with walking and I'm walking um a 50k with a school friend that's really got into walking since then and it is it is remarkable how quickly you can get into that zone and be able to do it and your first 50 is obviously horrible because you ache and you're not you know you train for it but you can never really properly train for it um because it's your first one but it is remarkable how you can 
through training and just consistency you know like you go out every day but then you just walk a bit faster walk a bit longer and you just build it up and it's slightly irritating to me in a kind of I try not to let it bother me way that a lot of these events are billed as running and they could be both and it becomes a bit kind of well we're just runners and we're only there's no reason you can't have walkers because like I said sport walking um, and if you look at there's a brilliant YouTube channel by Roger who I've interviewed on here He's got loads of videos on there about how to sport walk. That's his thing. He decided that sport walk should be a sport. That's why he called it sport walk. And um, and, and it is. It's great. Once you get into it, it's it's highly addictive, as you know. And you just need to mm. work your way through it. And when you do sign up for these things, there's loads of training plans you've got access to. And depending on which one you're doing, you can start small, do 25K, work up to 50. So, yeah, yeah, happily. I'll go through it all at the end with you, Rachel, and we'll talk all through it. But before the end, I'll have you signed up. <laughs> Great. I'm, I'm quite up for that. I think that would be really fun. Um, I think it's, it's the association with, it's the marathon word, isn't it? That is a running mm. event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People just think, oh, well, that's a, that's a marathon runner who's done several marathons and now wants to join them all together um, and, and just run for, you know, several days on end yeah and they think that it's some kind of insane endurance event whereas actually if it's walking that makes Mm -hmm. it a completely different thing and even accessible to me in a way and a normal marathon isn't yeah absolutely I mean ultra marathon really is just anything longer than a marathon distance that's all it means really um Mm. some people put different meanings on it depending on what it is but you know if you're doing a 50k that's an ultra marathon because it's longer than a than a marathon that's that's all it means really and then from there I mean I've done 50s and now I'm on to the hundreds but it but, and it is it is an endurance thing I mean at the end of it you're you're pretty broken however I mean I was amazed at the last one how much better I felt than the one before because you're just consistently training for the next one and as long as like you said you needed some kind of um motivation to get out every day if you have a motivation to train for an event, then that's your motivation. In lockdown, the Ultra Challenge um, company that I do a lot of mine with, they said, oh, right, okay, well, we can't do any of these events in real life. We'll just do them virtually. So they set up this system, which is amazing, where you bought the medal. So you, you had to do it, really. Otherwise, you'd have a medal for no reason. Um, and they were like 12, 13 quid. And then off you'd go and do it in your own time which loads of people did thousands and thousands and then you could track yourself on a map to see where you were and that would spur you on if you were interested in racing you could you know see if you could get first so think or not necessarily first but you know if you could keep overtaking people and all this kind of stuff so it is quite competitive in that way but at the same time it doesn't have to be you can just say right all I'm going to do is walk that 25 and it doesn't matter how long it takes me to do it um I'm going to get it done so it's it sort of levels you up as a human which Guess what I'm going to talk about next? <laughs> You've done a lot of very good research. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I was really interested in this one because we're keeping on the podcast track. And uh, because you've also got one that you've created with Simon Watt. And it's um, it's more of a, it's a panel show, isn't it? And it's called Level Up Human. How should we redesign the human body? And I love this because I'll tell you why. I think of these things all the time um so talk to me about the idea behind that tell me what it is and, and and how you kind of produce that in the beginning so level up human was the podcast I made before the one I do currently and that was yeah it was a high production kind of thing with um a co-host and two sort of scientists on a panel 
and a studio audience who got to ask questions. It was really quite complex sort of setup. Um, but, but the idea of it was really simple. I, I originally I originally thought of the idea when I was working for the radio comedy department at the BBC. And mm -hmm. I pitched this idea to them called the Evolution Committee. And the idea of the Evolution Committee was that humans are just like evolving really slowly. It's quite boring. Yeah. And we should we should uh, speed that up a bit. And so the, the, the audience were going to be suggesting ideas as to how humans should evolve next. Yeah. And that was the original idea. And I did a bit of research by talking to this um, biologist called Simon Watt. And then he ended up pitching the idea to the Wellcome Trust and we got some money to make this podcast. And we toured loads of science festivals and music festivals in the UK. And we had loads of very eminent scientists and researchers on it. And it sort of evolved as, as, as things do. I mean, I love working on a thing and kind of working out what it is as I go along rather than kind of putting it yeah. in stone at the beginning. So the, the, the format evolved and it, and it became an opportunity for researchers to come on to talk about their field of expertise and to say, I'm an expert in, um, I don't know, skin. Here's how, here's how um, humans' skin could be better. Um, and often they would be drawing on ideas that exist already in nature. And actually, Simon has just made a, a show for Radio 4 called Hybrid, which is based on the ideas of like what, what in the animal kingdom is different about their bodies that we could perhaps borrow. Like, for example, um, you sort of think of animals as being like differently shaped humans with fur sometimes like you're mm -hmm. like a lion okay so that's that's like a you know a big like it's a creature right so a lion must therefore be the same as us but actually there's things like a lion's tongue is completely different from our tongues like yeah. a lion's tongue can take the skin off something in about four licks yeah it's a bit like a cat but on a bigger scale isn't it with those kind of like little hooks in it isn't it Exactly. So it's like these these creatures that have evolved in completely different ways from us actually have completely different superpowers, if you want to put it like that, mm. than we do. And we could borrow like the, the wall climbing abilities of the gecko or we could borrow the regeneration uh, abilities of like the axolotl, where if you cut one of its limbs off, it will just sort of regenerate mm. over time. And, and exploring all of that was basically the point of the podcast. And it was it was a huge amount of fun. And I was just thinking how good that would be if you could have that lion tongue. If there was somebody that you thought, getting on my nerves, I'll just lick them. <laughs> Get a bit, just take a layer off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that'll cut people down to size. Yeah, exactly. There's, um, you know, like chameleon tongues and things like that. Like Because I did an animal science degree. This is really interesting for me. And all the things that we studied is different you know you do the, your birds and your whatever um your bovine and your ovine or something and you're constantly looking at them and you think that is really clever that is amazingly and I think birds are really good as well because they've there's so many different varieties of them and they've evolved in different environments and and all that kind of thing but just to apply that to a human would just be amazing so what's your favorite idea if you've got a favorite one that sticks in your head from there that you you think is a good improvement for us um there's a worm which i can't actually actually it might be a slug i think it's called a blue blue tailed slug wow which is an amazing creature where if you scare it it's bum drops off um <laughs> so i think that could be useful in all kinds of all kinds of um situations you know your boss tells you you've done something badly and you just your body disintegrates in front of them um i assume they can grow them back later i'm not quite sure 
but I just think it would be it would be fun to experiment with some of this stuff. There'd be a lot of people not wanting to be scared if that happened to them. Oh god! I mean, theme, theme park would be messy, wouldn't they? Yeah, because <laughs> it's not just about um, animal things. Is it? it's just generally like I, I had an idea, and I've had this for so long, and I just always tell people about this one. And it's I don't know. It might even be on the program. I've not listened to every single episode, but I really want us to have um, a chip that we can put into our brains that would contain a complete book or a set of books or films or something or a series so like you know when your friends say oh have you read that book or have you seen that series it's amazing you go no but I'll just download it now so you have like a standard chip maybe hanging from your car keys and then you download the data from your phone onto it and then in the back of your neck there's a receptor and then you slot the chip into into the receptor in the back of your neck and then it, and then you press a button, and it would be downloaded instantly. And then you have experienced that book or film, and then you can just chat about it there and then. Genius. That would be genius. I think Elon Musk's other company that maybe isn't as famous as SpaceX is called Neuralink. Right. And is basically a basically that, but without the sort of faffing about with chips thing. Yeah. He wants to build kind of. Um, I think essentially it's like having having a sort of immediate connection to the internet in your brain and and that might that might enable that sort of thing yeah your brain stem because it's got to be in your neck somewhere it's got to be that kind of thing isn't it oh I've thought about this Rachel I'm gonna I'm gonna get down before he does maybe I can get a company involved and we can start I think you need to I think you need to get moving yeah and then you can (laughs) outstrip Neuralink and we can all I mean I love the idea of being able to like in the matrix where they download the martial art you know I love the idea of being able to download like I don't know, knife skills or yeah. not, not for like ninja purposes, but for cooking. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, or cut up a carrot really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, when you meet somebody and you, and, and, and you don't speak their language, you just be able to go, Oh, now I do. See, that's the one. And actually that's been done a bit, hasn't it? Cause you can speak into something and it speaks it back. I can't remember what it's called now. Oh, it's probably something Google did. I don't know, but it, you can Google do that. Yeah. yeah it is amazing isn't it but and you can instant they can hear you you speak into it and they can hear you straight away so that's already kind of in in development as well wow oh god we could spend all night talking about this um that's brilliant and, and such a good concept for a podcast I think especially a panel show where you could discuss it like we are now that's a really really good thing but also in the podding section I can't let go beware of the leopard podcast because I want to talk to you about um, how you are a you're a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, absolute super boffin, aren't you? Like you, that is your you're a super fan. I mean, what, how do you become a super fan versus just I've read the book and it's really cool? Because I'm really interested in this. Well, the first thing I want to say is that Beware of the Leopard is not actually my podcast, but it is a podcast no. that uh, run by somebody else who's another hitchhiker person. Yeah. Um, I think there are different ways to become a super fan of something either you start going to conventions about it I think that makes you a super fan which you've been to presumably have you I haven't been to a convention actually no um but or you collect the thing that makes you a bit of a super boffin yeah or the way that I have turned into I mean I I hesitate to use super boffin because I actually don't know everything there is to know about the book I just am a fan um a mega fan yeah I'll take that I'll take that um is that I started a comedy gig about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on the anniversary of Douglas Adams's death because that sounds a bit morbid but 
when Douglas Adams died, loads of fans wanted to attend some kind of celebration of his life, and there wasn't really one they could access um, because obviously his family were doing things for his celebrating his life, but the fans wanted to do something to mark his passing. Mm-hmm. And so they started carrying a, a towel on the day that, well, on, on, a, on a, an anniversary close to the day that he died. Um, they started carrying a towel and uh, they, they would like openly carry a towel every year on the anniversary of his death. And I found out about this and I thought it was amazing, this thing called Towel Day. Yeah. having been a huge fan of the the radio series um and, and later the book and i was looking for a gig to do a tribute set about hitchhikers on that day and i sort of thought that there would be a gig that would allow me to do that and there just wasn't so i thought right i'll put one on then if i'm still doing comedy a year later and so in 2017 i rented out the basement of waterstones on tottenham court road mm-hmm. and put a call out to all the comedians I knew, does anybody want to do a tribute set to Douglas Adams on this towel day? And nine or 10 people came forward and said, yes, we want to do that. So so we went into this basement and we did a Vogue on poetry anti-slam and some people performed some fan fiction and there was some Vogue on poetry read out uh, made from Katie Hopkins's tweets. Oh, and there was a... Uh, various people doing various sort of quite serious tributes to hitchhikers and what it meant to them and then we got John Lloyd who wrote The Meaning of Lift with Douglas Adams to do a sort of talk at the end and it was wonderful and loads of loads of hitchhikers fans came and and we did it every year and we took it to Cambridge one year where Douglas was born and and sort of studied and worked and um and eventually Save the Rhino kind of decided they wanted to incorporate this into their calendar of events and so now we do it now we do it in conjunction with them. Yeah. Um, 2020 and 2021, we've done kind of virtual events, which have included uh, some talks by the Hollywood producer who's made uh, Douglas's other book, The Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, into a film and, um, sorry, into a, into a TV series. And... Um, and it's, it's just been really lovely to connect with all these people all over the world who love this book as much as I do. And, yeah. and you know, I'm, I'm not somebody, unfortunately, who, who genuinely kind of collects facts about things or, or learns encyclopedic amounts of knowledge about something. So I'm still reasonably ignorant of a lot of it. And there are, there are people in this world who, who really do know everything. And yeah. um, so I'm quite often sort of chatting to them about how to do something in, in the most authentic way we can. Because well, it's such a good story as well, isn't it? And that's why I said about the beware of the leper thing, because that they described that as scribblings in the margins of the book. I mean, people just pull this book apart, don't they? And and you can see clips of it and, and that on YouTube. And it, I mean, the the script and how it's written is just brilliant, isn't it? Mm. It's wonderful. And I, I remember discovering it as a small child on a cassette tape that my dad had kind of ripped off off Radio 4, recorded onto a cassette. And it was one of the first pieces of um, radio drama to be recorded in stereo sound because it was um, it was broadcast in 1978. And to me, listening to it maybe eight or nine years later, it was just the most incredible thing I'd ever heard. Like mm-hmm. it was like the sound of the universe. You know, they they'd done these incredible bits of soundscaping 
they'd involved the radiophonic uh, workshop and and they they spent hours kind of making the sound of a whale falling through space and uh, you know just all kinds of really crazy mm. things which I don't think radio producers have time to do anymore but back then they just put all this love into it and it is just the most amazing sounding comedy show I've ever heard and of course it had some brilliant brilliant comedy actors in it like Jeff McGiven who is just hilarious and mm. uh, played Ford Prefect in the original radio series and it just it just had everything it was like amazing soundscape and and this brilliant script with with these brilliant actors kind of just just delivering all the lines in such a unique way that I think really lifted it off Mm. off of the the page of radio script which as far as I know Douglas was more or less writing and then handing to the actors to read immediately because he was notoriously bad at deadlines yeah and that's the thing because I started listening to I I don't think I really listened to it properly ever I think I've heard bits and bobs of it I don't remember but I started listening to it when I was um, researching for this and I'm just totally hooked on it it's just uh, just the act well I, I saw a bit about with the acting in and then I, I'm listening to the story now I just started listening to that but as you're such a mega fan oh before I do this I want to say two quotes by him, which just made me laugh today as well. It was really, really um, apt for today. And one of his quotes was, I love deadlines. I like the whooshing sound they make as they fly by. That just represents my work day today. (laughs) That's absolutely (laughs) perfect. And then the other one was, which is great, is in the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. (laughs) (laughs) You see where I got my line about the state programme? I can imagine you saying that, exactly. So we know the secrets of the universe, the great question of life and everything is obviously what? 42. 42. Everyone listen to this, like, what the heck are they talking about? <laughs> if you don't know the book, this won't make any sense, but this is your opportunity to go, go and get a copy. Exactly. After three and, books. and read it immediately. Yeah. Precisely. So we know it's 42, but what I want to know from you is if you could walk with anyone with us or past, famous or not, who would that person be? Where would you go? And what would you ask them? Well, I think I would have to choose a walker, given given what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually just been reading uh, a book called Wanderlust by Rebecca Solnit, which is about yes. the history of walking. Brilliant. And and she, she makes the point that it's very difficult to write a history of walking because nobody's really centrally you know gathering data on this mm-hmm. so you have to kind of piece it together and one of the things that she talks about is how in in the 19th century walking sort of became trendy to the point where people were building galleries in their houses for walking when the weather was bad and over the winter and so on yeah um and so the walker i want to choose to go for a walk with is is somebody from the 19th century um she's a she's she's known as the first modern lesbian her name is Anne Lister, and yeah. she lived in Halifax in the north of England. And she wrote a, a very extensive diary, a sixth of which is written in uh, cipher, um, because she was openly gay. But obviously, there were lots mm. of people who didn't, well, who she didn't want to know about that. So she wrote a lot of letters to her lovers in code, and she wrote a lot of her diary in code. But her diary is um, is stored in the Calderdale archive um in the north of england and it and it and it's like six million words worth of worth of uh journal entries diaries and so on which she recorded in 
really meticulous detail. It's so it's six times as long as Samuel Pepys's diary, which is much more famous. Bonkers, isn't it? Yeah. But essentially, she was a she was a landowner rather than a, a sort of you know political figure like Pepys was. So she's a bit less famous, and also she's a woman, so a bit less famous. Mm -hmm. um, but and a lesbian. Diary, and a lesbian, so a bit less famous. Um, but the, but this diary is uh, is fascinating. One of the things that I've started to do over the last couple of years is um, contribute to a, a huge project to transcribe it all. So reading the diary, um, kind of decoding some of the ciphers and, and writing it so that scholars can look at this for years to come. Um, and anyway, but, but the reason why I want to talk about her for, for this is because she was a walker who, who famously said um, in a line which was, taken out of her diaries and put into the BBC adaptation uh, of, of the diaries, which was called Gentleman Jack and was on the mm. TV years ago. Yeah. Um, she said, I can walk anywhere in 25 minutes. And, and I just, <laughs> I really like that. It's just, yeah. it's, it's the kind of ballsy confidence that she had that uh, I find I find really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, she was fascinating. And I, actually I saw something like, similar to that recently where someone said, you can walk anywhere you just got to make time to do it or something but she she is fast in fact it's interesting because um she has already been chosen on this podcast by a friend of mine oh, yeah. Laura Hobson who I interviewed at the beginning of this whole journey I think she was the second person I interviewed and um she also chose her and she's and I started to research her she's a fascinating woman because she was an anatomist as well and she dissected a human head uh, I mean back then all the things that come out about this woman is just incredible and her I mean you you must know this some of the the diary pages because there's about 7,000 of them I think some of them had to be decoded twice that's how she did it I mean she must have been a supremely intelligent woman mm. but she was also a mountaineer and she climbed yeah. I think I think it was the third second or third highest mountain in the Pyrenees as well back then mm. she's she's incredible real real leader yeah. of her time wasn't she Completely incredible, and and somebody who was determined to educate herself, um, despite the fact that that there was really no particular need to do that. Like she'd inherited from her father, she'd inherited this whole estate. And the mad thing is that um, halfway through her life, uh, suffrage sort of expanded a little bit, so people on her land suddenly had the vote. But because women's suffrage hadn't happened yet, she didn't have the vote. So suddenly some of her tenants could vote right. in the local or national elections, but she couldn't. So she kind of went round to all the houses and told them that they had to vote in a certain way, otherwise she would kick them off the land. So she was, she was a, a very powerful uh, person mm. who also stood up to all the local aristocrats about all kinds of things, uh, really fought her own corner, and seduced half the women in Northern England, as far as I can tell. <laughs> but what would you talk to her about then? Would you talk to her about what would you what would you say to her? What would be your first question? Your opener? Um, I think I would, I would probably, I would try to find out a bit about what she, what her worldview was essentially. Like, what drives somebody to why? What is it about the human body that was so fascinating to her? Like she kind of independently went and took up with a tutor in Paris to learn all about um, anatomy and 
as you say, dissected a head and I think dissected a baby. And, you know, she, oh. she was really, really fascinated in all this stuff, which I think a lot of people would found quite macabre and difficult. Yeah. Uh, and, and essentially she's somebody, I think, who had she been born today, she might have become a surgeon mm-hmm. or, you know, she was obviously that, that way inclined and really fascinated by medical stuff. But I would kind of want to know where that came from in her life and um, and find out what she was hoping to achieve with it all because she, you know, she'd written all these diaries and every day she's doing her Greek and her Latin, she's teaching herself all kinds of things. But then unfortunately she goes traveling to Georgia when she's about 40 and died and her wife had to bring her back, bring her body back from Georgia, mm. which you can imagine like that journey on carts yeah. and boats absolutely horrendous but I'm about the same age as she was when she died and so I I kind of I'm thinking like you know I would want to know what what her hopes were for all this education that she was doing like where does she want Mm. to take it Mm. what does she want to do next that kind of thing amazing I think as well I would have asked her about how she created the code because I think it was I might be wrong about this ancient Greek and algebra or something mixed together uh, how that's how she made the code but I mean that in itself is incredible so yeah what an amazing woman well thanks for that that's a that's a brilliant answer I love that one I think they're making a second series of Gentleman Jack now so um I'm not sure when that's going to come out but it won't it won't be far off and you can watch Saran Jones who's an incredible actress uh portrayal of Amnister is absolutely stunning oh I can't wait to see that yeah that's gonna be a brilliant drama really good Rachel, our time has come to an end. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. So thank you for being on the cast and telling us all about you. It's been super interesting and um, yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been it's been really fun. And, and now I'm going to quiz you about ultramarathons. <laughs> yes, definitely stay on. We'll talk about that. But keep walking and podding and good luck with everything that you do in the future. Thank you, I will. Oh, thank you so much, Rachel, for letting us into your life and all the interesting things you do. And as usual, all the links, including Save the Rhino International, her podcast and all the other bits and pieces we spoke about are in the episode description. So do go and check those out. I hope you're getting out and about this summer and making the most of the weather. And it's not too late to join a walking event or start your own fitness plan. Check out the last three podcasts on here all about how to prepare for an ultra marathon and don't forget to tap into Sportwalk's brilliant videos on YouTube. Just search for Sportwalk and they're all there for you from how to walk to what socks to wear. And if you need any advice whatsoever, I don't bite and I'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to be a guest, do the same. You can mail me at steppingoutthepodcast at gmail.com. So steppers, keep fit, stay healthy and I look forward to having you along next time. Thank you.